Hi, welcome to the Rainbow Podcast. I'm your host, Tanya Papaniklov. Rainbow and I are on a mission to upgrade humanity with fungi and expand the collective conscious. This podcast builds a virtual mycelial network of bold, open-minded thinkers and seekers. I chat with experts, thought leaders, healers, scientists, entrepreneurs, spiritual teachers, activists, and dreamers. These are stories of healing, human potential, and expansion. Tune in, root in, expand, and journey with us. Hello, welcome back. Very excited to introduce today's guest to you, who is Dr. Dennis McKenna. And he's a human that I don't think needs an introduction. But of course, we have new listeners and people in the space that are just coming into this world. So I'm really excited for this to maybe be your first time hearing about Dennis and his brother Terrence. Or if you do know about them, this is a really, really great conversation and it's inspiring. I was introduced to both Terrence and Dennis, the McKenna brothers, in 2017. and. They just had, I mean, listening to to them speak played such a profound role on my development and my understanding of everything from psychedelics and plant medicines to reality and curiosity and all sorts of things in that vein. So they are kind of an iconic duo of brothers who've played a really big role in psychedelics since the 60s. So Dennis McKenna has conducted research in ethnopharmacology for over 40 years. He is a founding board member of the Hefter Research Institute and was a key investigator on the Hawaska Project, the first biomedical investigation of ayahuasca. He's the younger brother of Terrence McKenna, as I mentioned, and from 2000 to 2017, he taught courses on ethnopharmacology and plants in human affairs as an adjunct assistant professor in the Center for Spirituality and Healing at the University of Minnesota. In the spring of 2019, in collaboration with colleagues in Canada and the U.S., he incorporated a new nonprofit, the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy, where they do a lot of education and events. And he recently immigrated to Canada in the spring of 2019 together with his wife, Sheila, and they now reside in Abbotsford, B.C. We love that they love Canada. And our conversation is really interesting. I love hearing his take on the topics that we covered. We talked about what ethnopharmacology is and how he's been doing this for 40 years. And he just kind of gives us some snippets into his early life with Terrence and what led them to both decide to pursue this as careers when they were teenagers and in their early 20s. And we talk about reconciling being a scientist and being spiritual and really that this is about creativity and curiosity and the science, the spirit of science is curiosity. And that's something that resonates so deeply. We talk about the nature of reality and how this is impossible to define. We also touch on modern neuroscience um, and how that's shown us that psychedelics allow us to significantly reduce activity of the brain's default mode network, which kind of acts as this big reboot and defrag of the brain and how this is linked to one of the most enduring therapeutic effects on psychedelic substances and why this is so important for us and important to mental health conditions like anxiety and depression, PTSD, and really just this resetting of the default mode. 
network, how this can be one of the most meaningful experiences in a person's life and really allows us to break free from the negative thought patterns that were hardwired, that our brain is just hardwired to go to. And so this psychological flexibility is, is so important and allows us to kind of dissolve the barriers between ourselves and the world around us and helps us realize our place in this beautiful tapestry of life. And we talk about the auspicious day of Halloween that we're recording on, and he leaves us with some really beautiful advice and a message. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Let's dive right in. Okay. Hello, Dennis. Hi, Tonya. How are you? I'm good, thanks. And you know what? Actually, I should address you as, as Dr. Dr. Dennis. No, no, that's okay. You can just call me Dennis. Dennis is okay? Okay. I'm very informal. Good. I meant to ask you before before we got started. And I just want to express my great gratitude for having you on. And really, I mean, to share a, a little anecdote, you and your brother have inspired me in such major and profound ways. And I was introduced to your work in 2017, so a few years ago. And it really was a huge catalyst for Rainbow and for the path that I'm on. And so I, I really just yeah, I want to share that gratitude with you. Well, thank you so much. I'm glad it makes a difference to somebody. What in 2017 got you acquainted with me and Terrence's work? Well, in 2017, I was going through a bit of this transition and a healing journey, which I've been on for a long time. And I found fungi in 2011. So I've been learning about the forest since for a while. And my partner at the time, I was starting to develop a different understanding and relationship with sacred plants. And my partner, who's my, my now husband, was like, you know, you really need to get to know the McKenna brothers. So it started there. And I mean, he went down the rabbit hole much earlier than I did. But it started there and it was kind of one thing after another. A few months later, I ended up at a Native American ceremony, fire ceremony, and had some really major shifts happen that I got really, really sick after I had to go to the hospital. Really big changes happened from that. And in that process, I had to stop what I was doing. And I just said, I'm just going to start reading books from the people that inspire me the most. And then I had a ceremony, a solo ceremony with psilocybin. And nothing has ever, like, nothing has been clearer. And with Rainbow, we're not specifically educating about psychedelics and that those aren't our products right now, but it is inherent to part of the transformative power of nature. Yeah. And so I always say that ideas can be psychedelic too, and they can open our mind. And, and that's what you and your brother have provided us. And I, I like to think of this like karmic bond that you two have. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, ideas can be psychedelic. I mean, after all, the word means mind manifesting, right? So right. many ways you can manifest the mind. Yeah, absolutely. So would you mind taking us or telling us a little bit about, I know lots of people in our community know who you are, but also there's going to be a good deal of people who are just getting introduced to you and your work for the first time. So will you tell us a little bit about you are a researcher and an ethnopharmacologist and what does that really mean? You know, it's been 40 years in this field for you. And I would love to just hear a bit of the background on how did you and your brother both decide to pursue this and give us a little bit of the background. Okay. As you say, I am an ethnopharmacologist. I at least that's what I call myself. And I discovered ethnopharmacology 
And I have to credit my brother, who was uh, four years older than I am when we were growing up. So he was that much further ahead in terms of kind of pushing the envelope. And I was the little brother. I was tagging along. He was doing, I wanted to be involved. And so when he discovered psychedelics, he left home in our little town in Colorado where we grew up. He left home to finish his education in California when he was junior in high school. He didn't finish high school in Paonia, Colorado, where we were. He went out there because he wanted to be where the action was. And (laughs) a lot of the action at the time was around psychedelics, you know, and the sort of whole countercultural ferment that was going on. There weren't a lot of them. There was LSD is what there was. And there were a few... Occasionally other things, but there weren't a great many psychedelics around like there are now. But anyway, he was able to find them and got interested in, in them and then shared those interests with me. And, and of course, I was felt like the person in exile. I mean, he was <laughs> sending the telegrams back from, well, not literally telegrams, but right. sending letters. Letters, which is what we used those days, you know, kind of a lost art now, but uh, would send letters about things he was doing and people that he was hanging out with and ideas and so on. Wow. And, you know, we actually developed a stronger bond after he left home than we Mm -hmm. had when we were living together. Because when we were living together, he was like the classic older brother. He was very, (laughs) very mean to me. You know, and, uh, you know, that's just the way it is. That's the way families work. Yeah. But after he left, then he, I think, got a better appreciation for me. He began to realize that I actually had some things going. I wasn't the nerdy little geek that he thought <laughs> I was. Well, maybe I was those things, but that, you know, I had a few things going. And so our bond grew, and particularly as we developed this mutual interest in psychedelics. And that came out of really, in some ways, we were primed for that in some ways, because our dad, who was not into anything psychedelic <laughs> or anything remotely related to it, and in fact, he hated this whole thing. And he was, I was like, going to know, ask totally closed-minded about drugs in all respects. However, (laughs) he was open to science fiction, and he turned us on to science fiction. And he would sometimes, he traveled all week. He was gone from Monday to Friday. He was a traveling sales representative for a company. So he would buy these pulp science fiction Mm. books and also Fate magazine. And he would bring home Fate magazine, which still being published, amazingly. And it was, you know, I don't know if you know it, but they would talk about all these crazy things like UFOs and aliens and ghosts and paranormal (laughs) stuff and all of this stuff, which we were totally fascinated by. So when he would bring one of those magazines home we would be all over it and Mm -hmm. even back in the 50s and 60s they would occasionally have articles about psychedelics about things like 
masculine and peyote and there was even one i remember this uh, peruvian dream juice or something that was called well clearly ayahuasca right <laughs> right so i don't know if my dad actually knew that these were about psychedelics i don't even know if we knew about it but they would show up in this magazine occasionally and i don't know if he read them it didn't change his mind of course when my brother and i began to get interested in these on a personal level he was very concerned, like a lot of parents were. Mm -hmm. And we tried to reassure them, my mom and my dad. But, you know, my mom was more receptive to to the idea than my dad was. And my dad was just not interested in knowing anything about it or being educated about it. And it mm -hmm. was really a bone of contention in our family when we were growing up. But then eventually, you know, as we grew up, and really started to pursue this as a really career decision. In some ways, mm -hmm. he kind of softened to that and he began to see, well, you know, it, apparently these things haven't driven them crazy <laughs> or they were already right. crazy by the time they got <laughs> right. into it, you know. Yeah. And But they seem fairly functional and they're decent kids and, yeah. and you know, smart kids. So he uh, he became more receptive to it. And definitely when Terrence and I, and Terrence, I think uh, a, a big juncture for us, a big event in my life and Terrence's life as well was when we discovered DMT and there wasn't much DMT around in those days. But it was out there if you could find it. And Terrence was living in Berkeley at the time, and he was good at working the Matrix. And so he was able to get hold of DMT. And we both, I would be like about uh, 16, 17. And so he was around 20. But we both agreed it was the most amazing thing wow. that we'd ever encountered, you know, in our lives. Not just the most amazing drug, but the mm -hmm. most amazing thing. And that was really what I think made us determined to mm. effectively drop everything and investigate this. So that was the beginning of it was we'd taken LSD, we'd taken some other things all of which were profound and influential, but DMT was the key mm. for us. And we just thought this is the most interesting thing in the world and we yeah. have to investigate it. So that's what well, got us that's what got us started. And so your trips to the Amazon started after that? Yes. We went to the Amazon in nineteen seventy one for the first time. It was actually the Putumayo. It was southern Colombia and this place called La Chirera. And the reason we went to La Chirera was because we had stumbled on a article by Richard Schultes, the famous ethnobotanist from Harvard, who's probably at the time, well, who probably forever is the world's expert on psychedelic plants, particularly in South America. And he wrote an article called Varola as an Orally Active Hallucinogen was the title of it published in the Harvard Botanical Museum leaflets, which was like his house organ. You know, he was the director of the Botanical Museum, so he had printing press in the basement, basically. He could crank out and publish whatever he wanted to. So he wrote this article, and we had been working with DMT, smoking DMT, which is how you did it. DMT is amazing, but it's very short. 
And that was a frustration for us. We thought DMT, if we could spend more time in this place, Mm -hmm. we definitely thought of it as a place, as another dimension, really. That was our model, probably Mm -hmm. coming from the whole science fiction perspective, you know, that's how we had got interested. This really is a different place and you can go there, you know, and, Mm -hmm. uh, but we thought, that DMT is so short acting by the time you actually get there, it's already fading off. So we thought if we could find an orally active version of it, we could spend more time in that place and maybe learn more about what it was to be in that dimension. Our idea was basically very simple and kind of naive, but when we learned about this preparation used by the Witoto people, from varola, which is a genus of trees that is used as, it contains DMT and 5-methoxy-DMT. It's used as a snuff by a number of tribes in the Amazon. But the Witoto were using it as an orally active oral preparation. Mm. So we thought, aha, this must be it. This is worth going after. We did not know at the time that Ayahuasca has a similar pharmacology. It's, uh, you know, it too was an orally active form of DMT, where the monoamine oxidase inhibitors in the vine protect the DMT when you take it orally. DMT is not active orally because it's destroyed by enzymes in the gut, monoamine oxidases. And so that's the basis of ayahuasca uh, pharmacology. But that wasn't really known at that time. 1971, Mm. the pharmacology of ayahuasca was incompletely understood, and the importance of the admixture plants was not really understood that well at that time. So this other thing came to our attention and came up on the radar, and we thought, well, yeah, we have to go to Colombia and and look for this (laughs) thing. And so we did. We went there in in 1971. And we went to La Chirera because it was where the report was from. And it was it was the ancestral home of the Witoto. And they were the keepers of this mm-hmm. knowledge. It was their medicine, which they called Ukuhe, mm-hmm. more or less. I can't really pronounce it, but something like Ukuhe. So we went for Ukuhe. And when we got to uh, La Chirera, it was quite a trek getting there. And when we got there, we found that there were this little mission village there. They cleared the rainforest around it, several hundred acres, and they put in pasture. And they brought in these cattle, the Cebu cattle, the white humpback cattle. Well, Psilocybe cubensis, the pantropical psilocybin mushroom, happens to love the, the shit of... Uh, Cebu cattle, that's the preferred substrate. Wow. And we were in the rainy season at the time. So we got to La Chirera and there's big clusters of Psilocybe cubensis growing out of every cow pie. Wow. We knew what it was because we'd done our homework, but we had no real experience with it. But we knew what it was, you know. So we thought, oh, great. This is fantastic. Well, you know, we, we can play with this, we can enjoy this while we're looking for this ukuhe, which Mm -hmm. 
you have to ask around for. They're not just going to come out and present yeah. it on a on yeah. a platter. You know, it's a secret, right? Yeah. So that was what we thought, and we did start eating the, the mushrooms on a regular basis. You know, and pretty much on a daily basis. <laughs> It's <laughs> awesome. Partly because there wasn't all that much to eat. <laughs> and these were abundant. And, you know, they make great soups and omelets and that kind of thing. And uh, wow. so we were kind of in this place all the time, just slightly loaded, yeah. you know, 24 7 on, on psilocybin. Wow. And the mushrooms, this ukuhe that we were looking for, we had called it the secret. We're sort of playing out our living out our old myth here about this quest mm -hmm. and we were seeking the secret but the mushrooms quickly made it clear they're the secret mm. you know they were really what we'd come for and they began to transmit a lot of information wow which we took to heart and I don't know what your experience is with mushrooms, but you probably had a few. Mm -hmm. And yep. you know how you can have a sort of an I-thou relationship with these things. It yeah. actually is like talking to another intelligence. You yeah. know, what, yeah. whether you see, see another or not, this definite sense of there's somebody, some entity, intelliki, something that mm -hmm. is transmitting information. And the mushroom was very much like that for us and had things it wanted to tell us about things we could do, essentially. And we, uh, well, th this is kind of going down a, a side <laughs> trip. That I, okay. I, I, always, I always tell people I don't want to talk about this because I've talked about it too much. But long story short, it laid out a program or it suggested that we could do an experiment based on the fact that at these high doses of mushrooms, we could hear a sound, an internal sound inside our head. And when we listened to that sound, we could imitate it. Was it a, a real sound or like a, a, a voice of wisdom? Wasn't even, it wasn't a voice. No, it was a sound. It was, it was like a sound. A, some kind of an electronic mm. buzzing, kind of like chimes, kind of like a buzzing popping crackling sound kind of like the sound that you hear sometimes when you smoke dmt hmm. you know if you've had that it's like it's like crinkling cellophane hmm. <laughs> kind of a hard thing to imitate with the right. voice but we could imitate it and when we imitated it your voice could lock onto it and it would just sort of come pouring out of you this amazingly powerful sound it was almost like a physical force and the mushroom was suggesting that if we were to direct this sound at a mushroom on psilocybin that it could essentially flip our dna into a superconducting state and generate a standing waveform Amazing. that would radiate information out from this thing so that was the idea that was suggested to us and this experiment to to carry it out and like i say i don't really want to go into it people mm -hmm. can look at because i've talked about it a lot people can look at the mckenna academy which is my website the mckenna.academy and they can look at the uh 
Experimental La Chirera 50-year retrospective, which we did in 2021. Mm-hmm. I can't even spell McKenna anymore. <laughs> and I'll find that and definitely link to it in the show notes. Yeah, and, and people could get the full story. They get the full download there. So anyway, that's how we got started. And after all this happened, we returned. It's really what influenced me to pursue the scientific study of psychedelics. And mm-hmm. And Terence came away from this experience with the perspective that what we experience could never be explained by science, and we should just reject science, you mm. know, and, and which he kind of did for the rest of his life. In some ways, he was not. So we, in some ways, our paths bifurcated because I decided I, I want to study the nuts and bolts of psychedelics. I want to study the the plants, the pharmacology, the molecules, the mechanics of it. And Terence wanted to uh, study the the metaphysics, if you will. And those are the two paths we pursued, And but not that they were separate. I mean, we were yeah. very much worked together over the years, but that's what got me, kind of what got me started. Mm-hmm. So when we went to La Chirera in 1971, I was 20, and my brother was, uh, was I 20? Yeah, I just turned 20. My brother was four years older. So we were extremely young. So young. Yeah. Wow. So young. We were at that place in life where you think you know stuff and <laughs> <Yes>. actually <laughs> you know nothing. <laughs> but yeah. that wasn't stopping us, you know. Yeah. So we were continuing on that path, but we'd been obsessed with psychedelics for a few years previously and and in my own life two things were really influential that led me to travel this path one was for my 18th birthday terence gave me a copy of the first edition of the teachings of don juan Mm. by carlos castaneda and the same year i got a book i'm not sure from what source where it came from but it was the uh, called the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. And it was the proceedings of a symposium that the National Institute of Mental Health had sponsored in San Francisco in 1967. Mm-hmm. And it was a closed conference. The only thing the taxpayer ever got from this was this publication. But the publication was all the papers and everything that had been presented at this conference and somehow or other it came on my radar and I got hold of this thing. And these two books were very influential to me in the sense that the teachings of Don Juan, which I think the consensus now is that, uh, you know, he made most of it up, but it didn't really matter in a certain sense because I didn't know that. And also it made it clear that there was a tradition, there was indigenous knowledge about these things, you mm-hmm. know, whether he was accurately representing that or not didn't really matter. The point was that there is a context for it, a cultural context. Yeah. And then the other side of that was this ethnopharmacologic search for psychoactive drugs, which was very hard science, all about the plants and the chemistry and the pharmacology, as well as the cultural aspects. Mm-hmm. And it was that that really influenced me to pursue ethnopharmacology. I mean, I realized from this book that this was a real discipline. It was 
interdisciplinary by nature, but it was a real discipline, and it was one that I wanted to uh, to pursue professionally. So that's what led me. And then, you know, when I went, that was really before I started in the university. And for the first couple of years, I studied uh, anthropology primarily, and a little bit of botany and so on. But after La Chirera, when I came back, I sort of shifted my studies more into the nuts and bolts of it, mm-hmm. the botany, the chemistry, and the pharmacology, because I felt it was important to have a yeah. foundation, you know, before you can reject science. The point I made yeah. to Terence is you have to understand science. You have to be able to do science. Mm-hmm. We were not scientists when we went to Lecture. We may have thought we were, but we weren't. <laughs> the spirit, the spirit of science. <laughs> we, were, we were in the spirit of the science, but we weren't scientists. Right. Yeah. That actually, I do want to talk about your work with the McKenna Academy, but that does lead me to one of my questions I had for you, and it's a good segue, which is, I mean, maybe this doesn't need to be reconciled, but how do you reconcile being spiritual and being a scientist? And it's not that I believe that they're separate in any way, but that we kind of still perceive them as separate. I'm really excited about the intersection amongst in those in those places. Right. I think this is a misunderstanding. I think that science is actually a spiritual activity properly pursued. I think the best scientists, and I'm not necessarily including myself in that, but I think great scientists pursue what they pursue because they're driven by curiosity. Yeah, They're driven by a desire to uncover, make discoveries, uh, uncover new information and you know ultimately to understand ourselves and our mm-hmm. our place in nature you know that's a spiritual quest yeah it just it uses the tools of science the tools of experimentation and hypotheses and discovery but it's most importantly i think it's driven by curiosity Mm-hmm. You know, and curiosity is what pushes science forward. And in an individual life, it's also what pushes development forward. The curiosity is at the basis of learning. Yeah. You know, so I don't agree at all that sci- you can be spiritual and you can be a scientist. And some people pursue science and they forget that there's a spiritual angle to it. They forget mm-hmm. that really this is what it's all about. It's very easy to get caught up in the routines of science, you know, and science is, what is science? Science is about being an academic and publishing papers and having graduate students and going to conferences (laughs) and getting grants and all that stuff, right? That's an aspect of it. And you don't have, but you don't even have to do that that to be a scientist. You have to remember that it's good to remind yourself occasionally that what science is really about is the search for truth. Mm-hmm. It's a search for a better understanding of the world and of the universe that we find ourselves in, which is an astonishing place. And truly, science has the tools to ask questions of nature and get answers back that make sense, mm-hmm. you know, and thus move understanding forward. That's the true scientific quest. All the rest of it is, well, I mean, it, it's kind of, this is the way 
mm-hmm. big science operates these days, but you don't have to practice that. Right. Well, you can practice that, but it's important. And I think this is where psychedelics can be particularly useful for scientists because they can provide a reminder of how little we know. And it's really important to keep that in mind. Science is a discipline that lends itself to arrogance, you know, mm-hmm. at least for certain scientists. You can reach a point where you, you kind of think, well, you know, we understand all that. We, we've got it all figured out. No, you only have a tiny, tiny fraction of reality figured out. And even that is could be wrong. (laughs) Right. Even that could be wrong. And that's yeah, you know, that's the challenge and the beauty of science, you know, is Mm -hmm. that you know it's one of the few disciplines where you construct uh, models, you construct hypotheses or ideas about the way something is in some physical phenomenon or something in nature you have notions about mm-hmm. how they work and then you try like crazy to demolish that to find out what will invalidate it what is the piece of data that will completely disrupt this theory whatever it may be your pet notion you have to honestly approach it and say what are the deficiencies? What does it not explain? And if you say, well, I can't really think of anything. This looks like a pretty good model. So you accept that, but it's never proven, right? You accept it provisionally, knowing that next week, next month, or 100 years from now, some piece of data may come along and demolish your mm-hmm. pet idea. But it's it's useful. It's helped to advance knowledge. Mm-hmm. But you have to be ready to abandon the hypothesis if there's data mm-hmm. that it can't explain. Yeah, You never reach a point where you say, this hypothesis is proven. This hypothesis is absolutely this 100% is nailed down. You yeah. can't do that. Yeah. So I think that I think science is useful that way. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think that actually, I think that even that psychedelics are useful for helping us remain humble because they put full in your face the experience of how little we know and mm-hmm. how far beyond our ability to comprehend actual reality is, you know, mm-hmm. because it's, it's, because it just exceeds that. But also, I think that psychedelics can be viewed almost as uh, scientific instruments in some way. If you take psychedelics and look at nature, it's almost you look at it through a fresh lens. You look at it from a different perspective. And you can notice things about natural processes that normally escape notice Mm -hmm. because the brain is very much trained to put the details in the background right because you're focusing on what's in front of you the brain is very much focused on attention is directed outward to that saber-toothed tiger that's about to come attack you you know Mm -hmm. you definitely want your attention (laughs) on that right right but all the other things that are going on in the background those are important too Mm-hmm. And it's important to pay attention to those. And, and psychedelics, because they have this ability to uh, disrupt what they call the default mode network, they give you an opportunity to notice things that normally are just suppressed because mm-hmm. they're not immediately important to your survival. Yeah. But 
they're important to be aware that they're there and look at these things in detail. And I think psychedelics give you a tool. Absolutely. To do that. that. So what I'm hearing too is like everybody is a scientist. Everyone's a creative scientist of their own life in a way. Mm -hmm. And that we can't be dogmatic in our approach to spirit or science or really anything and to stay open-minded. I did want to touch on with you the the default mode network and just hearing your take on why that psychological flexibility is so powerful to us. And, you know, this combination of the default mode network in combination with like, do you think it needs to be combined with an experience of ego death for there to be long-standing therapeutic benefits that are long-lasting? Well, I think, yeah, I don't know if I would equate it to ego death, but uh, but I think the ability of psychedelics to temporarily disable that default mode network, which which I sometimes call the reality hallucination. Mm. And it's kind of this construct that our brains make. It's a model of reality. And that's the reality we inhabit, not reality itself. Because it's kind of like, a I wouldn't say dumbed down. It's a schematic of reality. A lot of what the brain does is filter information out. I mean, we have portals, sensory neural portals, our senses and so on, for information to come in from outside. But if it all came in, we wouldn't be able to handle it. You know, we wouldn't be able to handle. So the brain constructs this model of reality. Then that's the reality that we inhabit is ordinary consciousness. It's day-to-day consciousness. And that's fine. We need that in order to navigate so we don't step in front of buses and, you know, we can open a can of tuna fish if we need to, things like that. But occasionally it's useful to disable that and step outside that reference frame and really in some ways blow it up. That's what psychedelics do temporarily is they can open up these portals, the the filters or the gates, the gating mechanisms that the brain works on are temporarily disabled. So you get a flood of information that comes in. That's why you need to be prepared for that. You need to do it in the right set and setting because mm-hmm. you're deliberately opening yourself up to this. So you have to be able to pay attention to it. You have to be ready to... Uh, to surrender to it effectively because mm-hmm. that's where the learning goes on. So you want to do that in a place where you don't have to worry about ordinary stuff, other people or, you know, who's at the door or who's on the phone or mm-hmm. you want to do it in a special circumstance. So that's the whole importance of set and setting. And I think that the ability to disrupt this default mode network temporarily is at the basis of the therapeutic effect, because it gives you a chance to step out of that reference frame, look at your existential situation from a perspective that you don't normally have. And Mm -hmm. whether that be addiction or trauma or depression or PTSD or whatever, anxiety. And again, I don't want to say that psychedelics, that you have to take them, that you have to be sick to benefit from them. I Mm -hmm. mean, they they are learning tools. And it's perfectly legitimate to say, you know, well, I, you know, I don't have any particular problems that I'm trying to solve, but I'm curious sort of about the nature of consciousness and 
the limits of conscious experience. And so they're, they're exploratory as much as they are therapeutic. Mm-hmm. But all of these things, all of the many therapeutic uses that they talk about for psychedelics have to do, I think, with this ability to step out of your reference frame, to to right. actually disable that. And the therapy comes in or the therapy comes from the insights, but then this this thing, this construct that the brain makes, it tends toward equilibrium, right? So it's going to come back. It will fall back together. It's very much like booting your computer, rebooting mm-hmm. your computer. I think it. I think that's exactly what it does. It's a big serotonin reset in the brain, and when the default mode network does come back up very much like your computer comes back up after you restart it, but it's got rid of a lot of cludge that builds up. Same thing exactly is going on. And so habits, misperceptions, misunderstandings, these sorts of things, they're cleaned out. And so the system just works better for a while. And sometimes it works better for the rest of your life. Sometimes (laughs) you have to go back and... yeah. And top it up once in a while. But I think this is why psychedelics have this long-term therapeutic benefit that you don't get from other psychopharmaceuticals like SSRIs and these sorts of things. Because they don't really address the problem. Mm -hmm. They just, they're like band-aids, you know. Yeah, and I think what's missing from from that too that psychedelics provide so beautifully is like allowing this tapestry of like of our connection and interconnection to come together and that there is like such profound awe in getting back, getting the brain back to that state. Right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why, yeah, I think awe is, uh, is a good term for it. You know, it's an overused word, but in this, in this context, I think it's quite right. I think Mm -hmm. there's a lot about the psychedelic experience that is reminiscent of childhood. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think we feel like children often totally. when we take psychedelics because children are in that place all the time. You know, mm-hmm. they don't have these gates mm-hmm. that it takes a lifetime to develop. They're just completely open to whatever's yeah. coming in. They're like little beans on acid all the time. It's so true. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, they view the world with wonder, and yeah. wonder is a wonderful thing, you it know, is. To, to have. So if we could do mm-hmm. more of that, you know, totally. and less, less of the uh, of the other thing, yeah. we'd be happier and we'd be wiser, you yeah. know, because we, uh, you know, the sacrifice you make in living inside a default mode network. You know, I mean, I mean, you need to do that because it's it's for our convenience. But you don't want to get trapped yeah. there. You know, you want to approach it knowing that there is a world of knowledge, a world of wonder, literally beyond that. Dennis, if somebody is microdosing, does that have the ability to also turn off the default mode network, or is it only really through larger doses of of, of a substance? My personal feeling is that microdosing doesn't really do that. Microdosing may be useful. I think it's particularly useful after you've had one of these macro experiences, you know, that reboots the default mode network. Then the microdosing can be followed up Mm -hmm. 
simply as a way to kind of remind you of that mm-hmm. and in a way tickle your memory and yeah. and keep it going. But I don't think microdosing can substitute for macro yeah. dosing that uh, experiences sense. myself. That resonates. That was, yeah, my feeling as well. That makes a lot of sense. One thing you kind of touched on, I know you've you've mentioned it before in interviews, but I would just love to hear your take on it. Knowing that I know that you're open to things being wrong and whatnot, I would just love to hear your take on like, we often say like the nature of reality. And what does that mean to you based on the experiences you've had? What is your take on the nature of reality? On the nature of reality? Right. Well, uh, like I say, I think that, you know, I think reality is unknowable in a certain sense because we don't interact usually with reality in the raw, if you want to put it that way. Mm -hmm. We live inside this bubble, you know, we live inside this model of reality, which the brain has to do so that we can cope to it. So in some ways, you can't really say that much about the nature of reality And these are difficult questions to talk about because you get into these sort of epistemological conundrums where the words you're using are simple, but the meanings are deep and often not thought about very much. Like reality, what do you mean by real? Mm -hmm. (laughs) What do we mean by real? What do we mean by inside and outside Uh, one thing you learn from psychedelics is that everything is connected and that you're not there really isn't an inside or an Mm -hmm. outside we're one with the cosmos and all of these things that people say about cosmic consciousness and and being one with nature and and so on they sound trivial to say but they are actually real experiences and they Mm -hmm. force you to view reality, they force you to uh, kind of dump your assumptions about reality. I mean, we assume that there is, we assume that there is a reality, but what does that mean? Is reality just our own subjective experience? Right. Or is there more to it? Is there an inside? Is there an outside? Are we really separate? You get into these yeah. Rather confusing places. Absolutely. And so there there is like there's yeah, a, an inherent mystery to it. And I and I didn't ask I, I know it's it is like a cliched or trite thing, but it, it's it's an interesting topic because Yeah. Well, philosophers have been preoccupied with this for you know, ten thousand years. I don't think anybody knows the answer even today. You know, yeah. I, I don't think there is an answer yeah. in, in a sense. I, I don't think there is a point where you where you go and like in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. <laughs> well, the answer is 42, of course. Everybody knows this. Yeah. It doesn't work that way. I think it's not that there is an answer and you're going to find the answer. The important thing is you're asking the questions. Mm-hmm. And and I think you have to uh, kind of accept. And in, in some ways, you have to realize that is the point. That's what you're doing. And that comes back to this concept of curiosity and discovery. I mean, the joy of science, I think the joy of existence, in a way, is trying to learn what we can. Mm-hmm. And knowing that we're probably not going to get it figured out, and probably because nobody has it figured out, yeah. and you have to be okay with that. You have to just 
be able to step away from that and say, well, you know, the point is not to understand everything because mm-hmm. that's not going to happen. The point of existence is to understand what you can and have fun doing it. Don't yeah. forget to have fun. Yeah. And and ideally, <laughs> maybe maybe just like stay really present. Stay present. In There's, the present moment yeah. instead of that like backwards, forwards, you That's know, right. directions that we propel ourselves into so often. Yeah. And yeah. This, this is another thing that psychedelics can be very helpful for is to get you, help you stay focused on the present moment, you know, mm-hmm. because... When you think about it, there's really nothing else. We have experience. And whatever we experience, that is our reality. And whatever comes up in that reality is real in the sense that you experience it. Mm -hmm. And we can remember the past, but that's a memory. It's not actually the past. It's our reconstruction of the past. We can think about the future, but that isn't the future. It's our supposition about what the future means. These are artificial things. There is, yeah. and so like Ram Das or his teacher have the right the right idea in a certain yeah. way. Be yeah. here now, just be here now. Having accepted that, though, no, there's not a whole lot else to, to, to say. Do. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's it's true. I, I just started, uh, I've been studying, you know, lineages, yogic lineages and philosophies for a while. And I just started just exploring Buddhism and reading books. And it's really liberating living that yeah. way. And it coincides so beautifully with, with psychedelic experience and the reminder every day to come back to the precious, unfathomable gift that we have that to be here and, and just how curious it is to be in this existence and to not know so much and to look up at the sky at night and see these stars and allowing there to have some sort of a sense of like perspective and insignificance, but not in a disempowering way, but in a way that's like really can connect us to something bigger than ourselves. Yeah. And what is bigger than ourselves? And I think that's the chief insight that can come from, from psychedelics. That's part of what we can learn is that, we're just this moat, you know, we're just this little mm. particle of consciousness in a sea of consciousness. I mean, I'm basically a panpsychist. I think that consciousness is built into the structure of the universe mm-hmm. from the most fundamental level to the most cosmic level. Everything is conscious in a certain way. And this is the indigenous perspective. Animism mm-hmm. is pretty much this perspective. What's ironic now is that in some ways is that this is pretty much where science is at too. Yeah. Now come to the idea that consciousness is almost like a gravitational force or some other physical constant. I mean, it permeates reality and underlies reality and perhaps it generates reality. Mm -hmm. That resonates. I got shivers when you said that. And that's always an experience of truth for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I would love to just hear a little bit more about your, I know in the past couple of years, 2019, you you started the McKenna Academy. Will you tell us a little bit about what, what you're up to there? Well, uh, okay. So the McKenna Academy, it's a nonprofit that I founded in uh, 2019, or really 2020 is when we organized it in the States as a nonprofit. 
It's basically uh, it's about education mm-hmm. in the in psychedelics in traditional practices. Originally, we had the idea that we would do primarily conferences and mm-hmm. retreats and that sort of thing. And but then COVID came along, so it forced us to kind of go virtual for a while. You know, yeah. we really got started in 2020, and about the time we were beginning to plan a lot of these conferences and so on, the pandemic hit. So we had to pivot and develop a online presence, mm-hmm. and we've pretty much done that. You yeah. know, and there are many things on the website that you could look at and. Now that COVID has lifted somewhat, we can get back to doing physical conferences. And uh, we actually did a conference in the UK in May. I mentioned earlier the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs, Mm -hmm. that book that came out in 1967. So in 2017, I did a, I organized with a lot of help, of course, a 50th anniversary symposium of that. So it was called ESPD 50. Yeah, I saw that. Then you saw that, right. And then in May, we did ESPD 55. (laughs) So we just finished that. And uh, we're bringing the volume out. And it was a great little conference. Uh, Well, it wasn't so little, really. We had like... (laughs) 55.com you people could go there yeah link all of this yeah have you looked at the content i have looked at the content i've also i'm so curious uh the the mystery school looks so incredible you have you know hold conversations with really incredible people so i'm i'm excited to introduce our audience to this as well okay that's great yeah tell people to look at espd 55 they have to register with their email and a password but after that it's open access awesome they can okay watch or read anything they want and there's lots more on the website as well okay well yeah we'll link to that so we are recording this on halloween all hallows eve and mm-hmm. you i know you know it's a, a day to kind of lots of cultures and traditions have recognized as this day where the dead walks amongst us and we can use prayer and really our intention to pay our respects to our loved ones and spirits that have passed and so in that spirit, I wonder if you could share one of your favorite memories of your time with your brother, Terrence. One of my favorite memories of uh, my time with Terrence at Halloween? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> well, I can tell you a story about Halloween. Okay. Because back when we were young, Terry and I, we were the, uh, you know, we were not your typical kids, you know, in this small town. Um, we were thought of as the weirdos. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely uh, not the same, but we did like to do Halloween. And, and what we used to do was we would get dressed up and decorate the house and greet the little kids as they would mm-hmm. come to the house, you know, to get the candy and so on. But we were very effective at doing this. So actually our house became notorious and the mothers would stand at the corner and direct the kids away from our house because we, they couldn't take it. They couldn't take what we were doing. Of course, we were delighted. This was the whole idea right. was that we were trying to scare the bejesus out of the kids and it worked, you know. So that's kind of a story. That's <laughs> I, awesome. 
That, that's great. That's so funny. That that makes a lot of sense, I think. And one question that I ask all guests is, if you could share a prayer, an intention, a message with our audience, what would you leave us with? Just uh, be humble. Remember how little we know. Mm-hmm. And don't view that as something to be depressed about. Look at it as something to be excited about, because it means there's a infinite amount of things left to learn and that's exciting to me i guess that it's important to have fun don't forget to laugh yeah if the universe is a cosmic giggle (laughs) you may as well get in on the joke (laughs) that is uh medicine indeed thank you so much for this chat and your time and sharing your knowledge and insight and humor and all of this with us it's so appreciated well, thank you so much, Tanya. I appreciate your inviting me and let me know. We'll we'll get it posted on social media and Awesome. Go forward. Awesome. Okay. okay. Thanks again. Thank you so much. Great to meet Likewise. you. Likewise. Yeah. Bye bye. Bye. With deep gratitude, thanks for tuning into this episode. If you liked it, hit subscribe and leave us a review. That is always very appreciated. Mushrooms transformed my mind and body. And if you're interested in bringing medicinal mushrooms into your life and health journey, check out rainbow.com for our meticulously sourced Canadian fruiting body mushroom tinctures. Until next time, peace in and peace out, friends.